Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Lauren Herkus, an anthropologist at Carnegie Mellon University who specializes in faculty culture and the use of technology in higher education. Lauren's work is interdisciplinary by nature, but also really practical, asking questions such as why do some educators adopt new tech and others don't? I first saw Lauren present at a conference in Berlin, and I proceeded to tell every single human being I talked to afterwards about her work. At that conference, she presented on a project that asked a simple but profound question. Why did university faculty at Carnegie Mellon, an institution renowned for its learning sciences and advances in technology-enhanced learning, so often fail to adopt them? We talk about her findings, many of which I found really surprising. There's this disconnect between professional development in your domain and professional development, faculty development related to teaching. There is sometimes this lack of critical engagement with how do I do this well? You know what looks good, you know what feels good. You've been in classrooms for decades. You've been teaching since perhaps before you received a PhD. So knowing what works well means relying on what works well and trying something new is a risk. It's an experiment. Lauren has an amazing ability to synthesize and offers pretty deep insights while also giving useful advice. She explains to leaders how they might navigate reluctance from their own teachers to embrace new technologies. We also talk about whether the acceleration of technology and education that came with COVID will be sustained. And my favorite part of the conversation is about how she radically changed a PhD course she teaches called Educational Goals, Instruction and Assessment. She was trying to expand access to it and the surprising benefits she discovered from the changes. You'll also learn something about the ancient Mayans and their water compression management systems and why the original electric car did not take off. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Lauren Herkus, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me here today. So tell us the story of you. You're an anthropologist who studied the culture of ancient Mayan cities, as well as faculty culture and the use of technology in higher education. To practitioners and people like me, this seems like an unlikely combination. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, I see a clear connection, but then of course I do. This is my story, I suppose. I have always been interested in how old technologies are and work and what the the limits and boundaries of those tools and technologies are and how we got to where we are today. And both my my archaeological work and my research in digital technology and education explore the adoption of new technologies and how those intersect with existing practices and tools or supplant them or improve upon them, and why innovation sometimes appears really important, but then rapidly fades away, while at other moments, innovation changes everything. I'd love to hear an example from an ancient culture. Take us to an innovation that seemed as if it might transform everything and didn't, or the other way around. So the ancient Maya existed for hundreds of years. And over that time, of course, like any other civilization, it it changed dramatically many times for many different reasons. Uh, One of the things that the ancient Maya did very well that turned out to be quite important was water management. The creation of, of canals and pressurized water systems really changed the ways that cities could be built and that food could be produced and how densely people could live together, especially in a mountainous region where there was access to water differently in different places. More recently, about 100 years ago, the electric car and the combustion engine were both 
invented around the same time and began to become much more popular. Both were really exciting and new and had lots of great uses that had never been so possible with the horse-drawn carriage or any other kind of vehicle. And over the course of relatively short time, a couple of decades, the electric car virtually disappeared, but the combustion engine became really important. And now that everyone is talking about electric cars, a hundred years later, <laughs> there's this misconception that it's this brand new idea. And it's not, it's as old as the combustion engine. Well, the idea is older. The reality of it is just as old. But the reasons that the electric car was adopted in the past decade or two more broadly and not more broadly accepted a hundred years ago when it was just as primed, just the potential was there, just as much as it is now, have everything to do with the context of society. What people need, what they want, what they can afford, what's convenient given the infrastructure that exists and the social structures that exist. The same kind of technology is much more likely to be adopted now than it was a hundred years ago. So you and I first met when you were presenting some research in Berlin a few years ago, research that highlighted an interesting paradox. Professors at Carnegie Mellon University, a university known for its groundbreaking work in learning sciences, valued the scientific method in doing rigorous research, but they're skeptical of rigorous research around teaching. Before we get to the why, your great findings from this research, what was the impetus for this? Uh, well, exactly the question that you just asked triggered that that question. Some colleagues at Carnegie Mellon, especially Richard Ginas and Joel Smith, were talking to one another about uh, how exciting all the learning science research and innovation at Carnegie Mellon was and wondering about the, the real barriers to adoption. They saw that there were these incredible innovations that had come about at Carnegie Mellon and a lot of classrooms, a lot of courses had tremendous success using them, but many more professors, many more classes did not adopt cutting edge learning science findings or educational technologies. So why in a place where there's so much innovation around educational technology, so much discovery and learning science, were we not seeing a deep and rapid use of these incredible findings? Part of the innovation in you doing this was to apply an anthropological, archaeological lens to this. Is that right? Yeah, part of the innovation was to apply an ethnographic lens with a real focus on technology adoption and change over time. And so it was really a new way of thinking about how technology is adopted by people who are aware of those innovations and see the value of them in one domain, but perhaps don't move forward in applying them in their own lives and practice. And so what did you find? What was the reluctance? What were the barriers? Well, one of the biggest things that I, I found was that skepticism and reluctance weren't really foremost on anyone's mind. It, I, I wouldn't call it reluctance. I would say that there was an eagerness to adopt evidence-based findings, but it just, there was always something in the way. And it was the always something in the way that was really interesting to dig into because sometimes that something is time. I just don't have enough time. And sometimes that something was competing interests. I'd love to do this, but I know that the journal articles are what I, I need to focus on. That's what my tenure and promotion is based on. So that's what I have to spend my time on. Sometimes it was the, the readiness of the tool or technology. It isn't quite, quite at the, the point where 
it's intuitive and easy to use. And so there's a learning curve that, you know, I'll wait until it's ready. And sometimes it was a disconnect between the expectations for what a practice or a tool might do or might mean or might entail and the reality of what it would entail. So I spoke to quite a few professors who planned to do something really cool this fall, something that they had read an article about, something their friend had developed or a colleague had told them about. And so they got ready. And then just before the semester started, they started the process of integrating this new practice or tool and realized, man, this is a way different experience than I thought. I need more time. I need to change other aspects of my class. Maybe I'll do this next semester. I heard over and over again, the time just isn't right. I I don't have the time. There was also a perception that it wasn't right for them. Oh, that was developed in physics? Well, I'm a a chemist. That doesn't make sense in my class. Those two couldn't possibly have anything in common. Right, exactly. (laughs) It might might work in mathematics, but in philosophy, there's no way. And so there's this idea that domain is central, that the topic is most important and the pedagogy has to follow from there. And so although we know from research that there are quite a few pedagogical approaches and, and tools that can work across a lot of different domains, That's not necessarily intuitive to folks who have been working in one domain for the entirety of their academic careers. Your findings seem to lead you into this teachers really want to do the right thing by students and they feel that what they're doing is the right thing for students. I mean, it sort of made me think of a kid, like a kid only knows their own experience, right? But there isn't that sort of either meta level or critical thinking of like, but it could be better. Is that accurate? Did you find that? And dig into that a little bit more. What's going on there? We all only know our experiences. And most professors have spent a long time, often decades, learning deeply about their field, especially the theory and the practice of doing research in their field. The teaching in their field has been the means to that end, to learning about that domain knowledge. The teaching has been almost always critically unexamined. There hasn't been an invitation to, all right, so we just took all these doctoral level classes about this subject and you're about to get a PhD in it. Let's talk about how those classes were organized, which ones were good and why. What worked well? When you're a professor someday, how will you teach? That kind of critical analysis of or learning about teaching isn't part of most doctoral programs. Many faculty who are then hired into colleges and universities around the world don't have a lot of training. And in some cases, there's no training in how to teach. The focus is on, do you know your subject? Are you a phenomenal, phenomenal philosopher? Are you one of the best engineers? It's, it's not, and how do you teach this necessarily? And so that, that question about how to teach and how to teach well goes unasked a lot of the time. And when it is asked, you know, there's a there's an exploration. In a lot of schools, there are orientations and training programs and faculty development efforts. In some cases, they're pretty robust. But persistently, there's a sense of my expertise is in chemistry. My expertise is in literature. My expertise, my training isn't in pedagogy and instruction. So I can learn about that, but I'm not an expert in that. And yet, this is the practice, right? I, I practice teaching. I teach students. And that teaching, that mentorship is a really important part of most professors' identity, most professors' day-to-day lives, and one rewarding part of their their professional careers. But because there's this 
disconnect between professional development in your domain and professional development, faculty development related to teaching, there is sometimes this lack of, of critical engagement with how do I do this well? You know what looks good. You know what feels good. You've been in classrooms for decades. You've been teaching since perhaps before you received a PhD. So knowing what works well means relying on what works well and trying something new is a risk. It's an experiment. So I heard from a number of people I've interviewed, well, I know how to run an experiment in statistics or I know how to run an experiment in chemistry, but I won't run an experiment in education. I'm not qualified to do that. I don't know how to do that. And you know, if I try something and it doesn't work, it's not like these students can take the class again when I try again in the spring. This is their only chance to take this class. And so I wanna make sure that they get out of it what they need. And there's also an incentive problem here, which is that students rate teachers on their classes those student reviews factor into tenure and to lots of other things. And so there's a real risk to trying something completely different, because as you say, if it fails, that's going to reflect badly on them and hurt their own career. So there's a self-protective mechanism happening there as well, right? Absolutely. There's even a deeper risk because those evaluations of teaching don't always reflect learning. They often reflect student perception of learning and student satisfaction. But there's quite a bit of research that says student perception of learning does not always reflect actual learning. So whether or not students learn is important, whether students feel like they're learning, whether it appears that students are getting out of the class what they're intended to get out of the class. In some ways, in some contexts, that's much more important. That's what review and tenure are based on, that's what student evaluations are based on, that's what often colleagues' perceptions of your teaching are based on, since colleagues very rarely in most post-secondary institutions in the U.S., but also many other places, don't often have, often folks teach in a classroom where other, other faculty or other colleagues aren't present. There are no witnesses to the teaching except for the students. There was a great example that you offered about a statistics class. Give me the story there if you remember it. Faculty at Carnegie Mellon developed an online adaptive learning program in statistics that was incredibly successful. Students were able to learn just as much in half the time as students who were in the face-to-face -face class. The learning objectives were the same, the outcomes were the same, the impact was significantly improved. That statistics class has gone largely unadopted at Carnegie Mellon. There are still statistics classes that teach the same thing, but you know, this online platform isn't really popularly used. In order to have a deep understanding of what a course or a tool is and means, faculty almost have to be part of its development. To come to it after the fact and really deeply understand it requires a lot of time and energy. And a statistics professor who wants to teach Introduction to Statistics, they already have a course fully formed in their mind. They've probably taught one several times. They've certainly taken a bunch. And so to create and deliver that probably takes less time and energy and would be more intuitive than using an online course that they're not familiar with that someone else has developed. And there's a really important perception of the relationship between faculty and their, their teaching and students. There's this idea that the students should be learning from me. If I provide the materials that someone else created, well, they're not really learning from me. They're here because they're here to learn from me. And so I need to, to be the person who is, who's available to them and who's teaching them. 
And from students, there's a, a similar kind of expectation. Well, this person is supposed to be teaching me and instead they're just sending me these links or giving me videos or I'm walking through this assignment, but I'm doing that on my own. So I'm teaching myself. The pr professor's not teaching me. However much the professor may have pulled together all of those resources and carefully developed them in order to cultivate learning, the credit and <laughs> the perception isn't necessarily there. And that's important too, to many people, to, to faculty and to students. We have a lot of leaders that listen to this. They probably have teachers or staff who are maybe reluctant to take up technology. I'm curious if you have advice for leaders to encourage adoption of technology. I think the most important thing is to listen to faculty. Why are they reluctant? If you find that faculty are less eager to take up technologies, they may be concerned about time in which case they may need more time in order to, to take up technology effectively. They may be concerned about a learning curve. Digital literacy is a real challenge. Many faculty are being asked to adopt tools and technologies they're not familiar with. These have been developed in the years since they were students and they've never used them as faculty. And so they may need some, some real support in order to effectively adopt those tools and technologies. So first, listen to faculty, hear what those challenges are that they're facing and support them. Next, recognize that it means time. Adopting new tools and technologies takes time. Transforming courses uh, such that they incorporate new tools and practices is a non-trivial task. And doing that uh, on a large scale is even more complex. So building in the time and support for the, the work that it takes to do that well is paramount. And finally, don't expect it to be perfect the first time. Know that it's a process and build in data collection so that you can figure out what works and what doesn't and build on what you learn. So data-driven improvement is, is key. So I feel like this kind of leads us to that $64 million question of we've just had this crazy period where there has been this incredible acceleration of adoption of technology under duress. <laughs> Have we permanently accelerated the pace of adoption or did we just accelerate it when we had to and now we're gonna kind of go back to the inertia risk aversion? Every instance of technology adoption is a careful calculation of the benefits, the opportunities and the risks and costs and challenges. For the last year and a half, there have been some new and very strong pressures, some needs that suddenly appeared and became really pressing. And there are also some supports that came into play. You know, in many places, training and time and money and opportunities were offered to faculty to enable the adoption of new technologies and the rapid transformation of education. A lot of the barriers were removed. In many institutions, evaluations of teaching for courses that underwent rapid transformation were suspended during the period when emergency adoption was taking place. I think the question of whether we continue to see rapid adoption is a question about how many of those changes remain. Do we continue to provide extra support? Is it still considered extra? Do we still expect time and training and technological and pedagogical support to be important for the adoption of new tools and technologies and provide those to the faculty who need them. 
do we still incorporate evaluations of teaching the same way as we did three years ago for courses that have recently been transformed? Or have we changed our perspective entirely on that? Do we still encourage faculty to, to transform their teaching or to adopt new tools or technologies? Is that pressure as strong as it was? And of course, everything changes. 2022 will not be 2020. So the question is, what is the new balance of factors? What pressures exist? What supports exist? And how will those create the pressure or the opportunity or the need to rapidly incorporate innovative teaching practices? At the same time that that education within post-secondary institutions has transformed and a lot of those factors are being reconsidered, a lot of supports and structures have, have changed in ways that they simply won't change back. At the same time, the perception of post-secondary education and the experience of post-secondary education has changed for everyone around post-secondary education. The way that students see and expect their college education has changed, what students want from it, what students think is possible for digital learning, and how people in general think about digital learning has changed. It holds a different social space now that everyone has had to jump in. (laughs) And so what that means for the future, it it, it will be a dance. It'll be a dance between the institutions and the public and, and what people want and what they need. And the pandemic has catalyzed a lot of research about educational technology, pedagogy, and the ways that students, faculty, and general publics, let alone administrations and policymakers, think about the potential of educational technology and evidence-based teaching. So I, I think that we absolutely will continue to see transformation. The direction and pace, I have no idea. You have to teach students who are getting master's and PhDs in different forms of education science, which is super meta because they must be watching you pretty closely. Like, are you doing what you teach? Talk a little bit about how you have redesigned your own course and how you're incorporating your own findings into your own teaching. So yes, teaching graduate students about teaching effectively gets about as meta as it gets. (laughs) It's It's really, it's very demanding because the hope is that at all times, these exceptional teaching practices that you're describing are on display, that we are working through a real model, (laughs) but it's also very rewarding. It's, it's really exciting to be able to talk to students who are interested in, in teaching effectively about all of the ways that that can be done and to explore that literature. So how to do it is is both to read and think about it. (laughs) So we read about the theory, we read the reports, we read the results of learning science research and education research. And to model it, we we build a course or courses that exhibit all of the characteristics that we discuss in class. A course that I'm teaching right now, which is called Educational Goals, Instruction and Assessment, It's a core requirement for the Masters of Educational Technology and Applied Learning Science program at Carnegie Mellon, the medals program. This course was developed some years ago, primarily by Sharon Carver at Carnegie Mellon as a doctoral seminar. Since then, of course, it's it's undergone some changes. And most recently, it's been transformed for this master's program. And 
it had never had a significant online component. But in the past year and a half, of course, it has changed dramatically. In its current form, this class is very different than it was two years ago. There are many more students than there were. The course is entirely online. And we've incorporated uh, alumni mentors program, which is really exciting. This course is very feedback intensive. It's project based. And I knew that increasing the number of students meant making some significant changes in order to account for the, the variety of students and the number of students. And at the same time, it seemed like a really phenomenal opportunity to bring in some other perspectives. So the idea of using recent alumni as classroom mentors came about in part because I was trying to figure out how to grapple with scale. But as I started thinking about how the program might work, pretty quickly realized that working with alumni had a lot of potential to serve other benefits as well. Students who start this master's program often have really big ideas about changing the face of education, but aren't quite sure how they want to do that. Working with alumni gives them a glimpse of some of the different ways they might join the forefront of education after they've completed the program. When they meet alumni who have jobs across sectors and who are doing exciting things in different ways, they can envision themselves in these roles. It's also an unfortunate fact that some students find professors intimidating and might be a little reluctant to ask questions or to turn in work that they don't think is quite done. And so having a recent alumni who they can talk to about the, the nature of the work, you know, the fact that it's really okay to turn in a draft and get feedback and build on it, or that the course is incredibly demanding and yet so rewarding, or to ask questions of and be a little less intimidated is, is a huge opportunity. So I've recently given students a, a mid-semester survey and I've asked about their experiences in the class and how they're feeling about different components of the course, especially those new things that I've incorporated, evidence-based teaching and data-driven improvement. So it's incredible how many students mention the mentors, the alumni, as something that supports their learning in class and that they find most exciting. They say that working with alumni gives them new ideas about their own career trajectories and really helps provide concrete guidance for how to succeed in the course, not just support for understanding course concepts, but the sense that they are doing it right. It's very much like near-peer learning, although in, instead of more advanced students, these are recent graduates. But these recent graduates are applying concepts that they learned in this class in their actual work. And so in addition to this kind of near-peer component, they get to see authentic examples, which is really valuable, we know, we know from a great deal of research, authentic examples of these concepts in practice. They also can kind of envision their own career trajectories in ways that help them imagine new applications, real world applications for these practices and tools. And were alumni happy to do this? The alumni were happy to do this. They said they have time. Some of them underestimated the amount of time that it would entail, uh, although <laughs> we did give them uh, a number of hours to expect. And for the most part, those estimates have borne out. But the the real impact of you know some number of hours of week on 
your life when you're a professional, sometimes it's a surprise. So one of the things that I've asked alumni to do is to provide feedback for students, to, to work with them on drafts of projects, for example, and say, hey, how about you know, this element right here? Or have you thought about this, this perspective? Or you seem to be misunderstanding this concept. But for the alumni, one of the challenges has been time management. They just want to do so much for these students. They want to feel like they're doing it all and doing it right. And when I say, that's wonderful, I'm not going to tell you not to, but I don't expect you to. If you can go through this project in an hour and just provide the feedback you're able to in an hour, that is more than enough. I mean, more than that obviously will be appreciated, but it's not necessary. You recently co-authored a report that looked at the experience of COVID-19 in higher education to try and determine how to best accelerate digital transformation, improve access, and the quality of higher education. Very briefly, what were the key findings of that report and the key recommendations? Very briefly, <laughs> the, the key findings were that um, this is a non-trivial challenge, that equitable access is a key challenge to digital transformation. And there is a real need to modernize infrastructure and take a research-based approach to both implementation and transformation over the course of a longer-term implementation plan. This requires systematic change management and institutional strategies that support diversity, understand local cultures, and incorporate diverse aspects of institutional strategy. And finally, that digital literacy remains a real challenge, both for students and for faculty across the post-secondary sector, that in order to leverage all of the opportunities that digital tools and technologies offer, we really need to focus on how to effectively implement and iteratively improve implementation of these tools and technologies. How do we do that? Should there be a digital literacy curriculum alongside a literacy and numeracy curriculum? And isn't every teacher going to be like, come on, there's so much in there already. You know, there's so much I have to do. Is this really needed? Is it? Yes, it absolutely is needed. In order to equitably educate students, ensuring that they're able to equitably access our teaching is step one. At an institutional level, at a global level, assuming that professors are digitally literate because they're professors is a real problem. In order to support students developing digital literacy, faculty also need to be digitally literate. And so start where you are, <laughs> start with the faculty, make sure that they understand how to use the tools and technologies that we're using or that you would like them to use. And also make sure that they know that if they have to learn how, that's fine. Everyone has to learn how to everything. And so in order for faculty to learn how to use tools and technologies effectively, provide explicit supports and make transparent the fact that your students will also need to learn how to use tools and technologies. Now, students take more than one class at a time, most of the time. And so when faculty incorporate a tool or a technology and think, well, students will need to learn how to use this and then can use it in my class, they should also be cognizant of the fact that that student may be taking four other classes using four other suites of educational technologies that they also need to learn. That's very relevant to class planning and to student support. Thinking about the fact that your students are learning 
about four different topics and also learning to use four different sets of tools can help you really support students and target learning. So is the onus not on the administration to unify that for them? Absolutely. Keep in mind the user experience and the user is the student and also the user is the faculty. Those are two different types of experience that are both incredibly important in post-secondary education when we're talking about digital technologies. So think about how faculty can easily and without jumping through a ton of hoops, access and use effective educational technologies in effective evidence-based ways. Think about the ways that students will access the tools and technologies they need in order to move through their own educational experience without jumping through too many hoops. So that integration is really important. And yet there is tension between integration and consolidation, which really support ease of use and innovation. When we try and make change, we either have to change everything at once or bits and pieces. Changing bits and pieces when everything is deeply integrated can upset the balance, right? Can, can make everything more complex. So really making a plan for implementation, collecting that data to see what the outcomes are, if it is complicating other aspects of the system or other aspects of education or course delivery, and being able to rapidly change if you see that the benefits are not outweighing the barriers is very important. So we have run out of time. Um, I have to ask you our three rapid fire questions. What's your favorite book about learning? I think my favorite book about learning is How Learning Works. It's just a, a wonderful book that I use in my teaching and, and I really enjoy reading and rereading. Who's that by? It's by Susan Ambrose and a number of colleagues uh, at Carnegie Mellon. Perfect. What's your favorite book not about learning? I would say The Goldbug Variations by Richard Powers. It's, it's a really beautiful novel. And what are you binge watching? I am not binge watching anything at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most recent thing that I binge watched? The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your time. Education is a space where everyone often seems to be an expert because they were educated once, even if it was 30 years ago and the internet didn't exist and personalized education probably meant friendly education, which is why I enjoyed this conversation so much. Lauren picks things apart and then explains them so methodically that you're able to form a more sophisticated opinion about something like why college professors sometimes can seem kind of outdated. The easy answer is they're Luddites trapped in another time, slightly arrogant about their expertise and perhaps a little bit lazy or set in their ways. Lauren paints a very different picture of rational actors responding to the incentives of their profession, publish or perish, who worry if they try something and fail, it will hurt their students, and who believe above and beyond everything else, they are domain experts and should concentrate their time on their domains, not learning new technology and totally rewriting their courses in ways that may or may not be helpful. COVID, of course, changed everything. And as Lauren points out, the cost-benefit equation for faculty changed dramatically. I loved hearing about the alumni mentoring addition to her PhD course, which she did to expand access to the program and not compromise quality. It's a great case study in how big changes can have real benefits, many of which were unintended. Those mentors bring something to the students, which is invaluable. Feedback and guidance, sure, but also a hint as to how what they're learning might be applied in the real world. That's a benefit even the best tech probably can offer. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. 
And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.